Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles? This might be the last time you ever hear me say this. To Revelation chapter 17. Not the last time you hear me say, open your Bibles. But We've been in Revelation 17 for a while. We should be uh, finishing up tonight. So um, just really quickly, uh, because I don't want to obviously go back uh, and do the whole thing, but uh, John has a vision of a harlot riding this incredibly evil-looking beast. And um, she herself has a name written, uh, Mystery Babylon, Mother of All Harlots. And she's decked out in pearls and gold and precious jewels. And she is drunk with the blood of the saints. And so John marveled. He was greatly astonished at what he saw. And so we pick it up in verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw uh, was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, just bear with me. I have to review a little bit because otherwise a lot of folks who are just tuning in are going to be completely lost. Um, as we said last time, many associate the seven mountains that this woman is sitting upon uh, with Rome and the papacy. Because Rome is well known for being a city built on seven hills. The problem is in the Greek... John uses a word that means mountains and not hills. Mountains, right? Last time we said, well, let's see if we can't check to see these verses, verses 1, uh, verse 15, and then verse 9, and see if we can't put something together that will help us understand what it is this woman is actually sitting upon. Well, verse 1, Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on what? Many waters. Okay, verse 15. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So a little different metaphor. But putting all this together we understand that the seven mountains that the angel says the harlot is sitting upon is not literal hills, the hills of Rome. Uh, they are associated with peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Or, as we said last week, more specifically, they refer to kingdoms or empires. Uh, verse 9, once again, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, Verse 10, there are also seven kings. But let me stop once again and say the word there, which starts verse 10, isn't there in the Greek. It would make more sense if they would have used the word they instead of the word there. Verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. 
The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. As we said last time, mountains are often used figuratively in the Bible to represent governments or kingdoms. We quote it out of Psalm 30, where David said, You have blessed my mountain, O Lord, my kingdom, right? And then we took it to Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a polymetallic image, and at one point a stone not cut with hand strikes the image, and its feet, it all crumbles to dust, blows away, and the, and the stone becomes a great mountain that fills the earth. Speaking of Jesus' kingdom when he comes to establish it, okay? It's probably best, and we're still reviewing it a little bit, it's probably best to see the seven mountains as seven kings and kingdoms. Described in verse 10, and not as referring to the Roman Catholic Church headquartered in Rome. Now, as I've already said, and let me just say it one more time, I, I personally think that Mystery Babylon, spoken of in verses 3 to 5, is much bigger than just the Roman Catholic Church. Remember, Mystery Babylon has been around since the time of Nimrod in the Tower of Babel. I mean, that's thousands of years before the Roman Catholic Church came into existence, all right? Um, we are told that she spawned all false religions on planet Earth. She is called the mother of all harlots of the earth. That would include the Roman Catholic Church, of course. I think that the Roman Catholic Church is going to play a major role in organizing the world into a one-world church, bringing people of all faiths together under the umbrella of Rome, Roman Catholicism, uh, which will kind of head this false religious system up. They'll, I believe the Roman Catholic Church will spearhead it, but um, it won't be limited to just the Roman Catholic Church, as we have said many times before. All right, getting back to verses 9 and 10. And, and this is really the crux of the passage, okay? We wanted to uh, really nail it down so you understand what's really being said here. So getting back to verses 9 and 10, there has to be more to it than the seven mountains simply referring uh, to the city of Rome in John's day. Why do I say that? Well, the angels call for spiritual discernment or wisdom. Here's the mind that has wisdom. Would, be, would have been pointless if the seven mountains were an obvious reference to geographical Rome. So the angel tells John that the beast the woman is riding represents seven kings and kingdoms. Verse 10, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. There have been six world empires that have existed in history. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, which is one kingdom, Greece, and Rome. Technically, each of these kingdoms or empires didn't encompass the whole world, but they did encompass the whole known world of their day. And so as the Bible sees them, they are world empires. Having said that, the final world empire, the seventh, will be a true world empire encompassing the whole world, the whole planet. Let me say it again. There have been six world empires that have existed in history. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. In John's day, 
Five had come and gone. The sixth one, the Roman Empire, was currently in power in John's day. So as the angel told John concerning these kingdoms, five have fallen and one is, that would be the Roman Empire, and the other, of reference to the seventh world empire, has not yet come, a reference to the final world empire under the Antichrist. One more time, verses 9 and 10, because I want to show you something here that has perplexed a lot of people. Uh, but I want to try to shed some light on it. So, verse 9 again, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. They, or these, are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. It is difficult to understand, this is difficult to understand in that each mountain or kingdom is ruled by a king, not kings, is ruled by a king, all right? And yet each kingdom, again, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, each of these kingdoms lasted for several centuries each. That being the case, how can you have one earthly king ruling over each kingdom for that length of time. And that has baffled a lot of people. Uh, not that I'm so smart I figured it out, but I've read a lot. And I've gotten, you know, other men who have really dug into this and have shed some light on it that I've benefited from. Uh, yeah, how can one king rule over each kingdom for centuries, one earthly king? There's no way. It's, it, you can't. They couldn't do it. So again, let me give you what I believe is the correct interpretation which solved this problem. The use of the word kings in verse 10 could be, listen, a reference to the demonic entities over these world powers or kingdoms, seeing as they continued for centuries each. And no human king could have ruled each one for that length of time. Is there any biblical basis for that interpretation? Of course there is. You don't have to turn to it, but you know Daniel 10, right? As you read Daniel 10, Daniel was fasting for three weeks. And finally, an angel came to him and said, Daniel, I want you to know that from the very first day you humbled yourself before God with fasting and prayer, I was dispatched with your answer. But I was withheld. I had to fight against the prince of Persia, which kept me from getting to you for three weeks until Michael came, the chief prince, Michael the archangel, and together he helped me break through enemy lines. I can't help but think of Star Wars kind of a scenario. You know, we're oblivious, you know, we're bouncing around singing songs, praise God, you know. And in the angelic or the spirit realm, the lightsabers are flashing, sparks are flying, you know, because we're praying about things and God sent the answer about uh, what's being withheld in the heavenly places, right? Uh, a good reason to be persistent in prayer until your answer comes. Either yes, no, or sometimes just keep on praying, right? But when the angel finishes delivering, delivering his message to Daniel, he says, now i got to go back and fight once again with the prince. And the Hebrew word is um, chieftain. It's uh, a ruler, okay? You could say king. With the king of the power of Persia. This was the demonic entity that was over the kingdom of Persia. And not only that, the angel says, I'm also going to have to fight with the prince uh, of Greece also. Greece wasn't even going to be a world power for 300 years. 
but already the demonic entity that was going to be over the next world empire, the Grecian Empire, was already in place. Here's one of my favorites on this topic. You don't have to turn to it, but Ezekiel chapter 28, right? And the subheading is um, uh, a prophecy to the king of Tyre, okay? It starts out with God talking to the king of Tyre through the prophet Isaiah or Ezekiel. And he starts talking to him like you would, you know, an earthly king. You know, it's obvious the language is of the earth. But then starting in verse 11, all of a sudden, he's addressing the king of Tyre. But it's not really the king of Tyre on the earth. You were in the garden of God. You were in Eden. Every precious stone was your covering. You were perfect in wisdom and beauty, blah, blah, blah. He's not talking about the king. of. I don't think the king of Tyre was ever in the garden of Eden. He's talking about the, the spiritual entity, some believe the devil himself, who is actually over the physical kingdom of Tyre, over the, the, the earthly king of Tyre, pulling his strings, no doubt, feeding him in intel, information, telling him what to do. He doesn't realize it, of course. He just thinks he's a really smart guy, the king of Tyre. doesn't realize he's getting fed uh, from this demon or the devil himself, right? I think that this, and, and by the way, the Antichrist himself has a demon over his kingdom or will have a demon over his kingdom. Uh, a demon who possesses him, although there are those who believe, and I'm not ruling this out, I've taught this. The only two people important enough for the devil to possess himself was, uh, was uh, Judas and the Antichrist. But the, the Antichrist is going to have uh, a demonic entity or the devil himself over his kingdom. And we read in Revelation 11, verse 7, when they finish their test, this is reviewing still a little bit, when they finish their testimony, speaking of the two witnesses, that nobody can kill for three and a half years. They show up right at the beginning, beginning of the tribulation period. Why? Because all true Christians are gone. We've been raptured. And God never leaves himself without a witness, and so he sends two witnesses. I believe Moses and Elijah have come back, you know, because the Greek is these, uh, it's emphatic, it's like these two witnesses, the witnesses of mine, as if they've been used in the past, which if it's, you know, uh, if it's uh, Moses and Elijah, they definitely have been, all right? Uh, so they come back, right? We know Elijah never died. Uh, he was taken up in a fiery chariot, right? Moses, I, I, years ago, I, I, when I came across this and started really studying, I went back to Deuteronomy to see how Moses died. Very interesting, mysterious. It makes a point to say he wasn't, didn't die of old age. His sight was pretty good still, his vigor. But God kind of took him. And then God buried him. Wasn't that Mount Nebo, I think? That's and, then we, and then we come to Jude, how Lucifer is, uh, is, is arguing with Michael over the body of Moses. It seems to me Lucifer knows that God still got future plans for that body. And he wanted to take it. Well, of course, that's not going to happen, right? Anyway, that's a little side. That doesn't count towards my time. That was a little, <laughs> a little side trip, right? Um, so when the two witnesses have finished their ministry, it's three and a half years now, um, we read 
that the beast, and this is interesting because it's not the Antichrist, this is talking about the demonic entity that somehow was controlling the beast or the Antichrist, but this beast is a demonic, a demonic entity. Um, the beast that ascends out of, the out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, against the two witnesses, overcome them and kill them. Now, that's about as far as I can get, get into that tonight. We, we studied it last week. So if you weren't here, go online and listen to it. Because something very important happens as soon as this Antichrist is able to kill these two witnesses. It sets in, in motion some things that are going to propel the world into the second half of the tribulation period, which is going to be bad news for people on the earth. Okay? All right, back to Revelation 17, verse 10, uh, verse 10. So, you know, these uh, seven mountains are also seven kings. Five have fallen. Uh, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. This final world empire controlled by the Antichrist is not going to last for centuries like the other kingdoms that came before it. All right? It's only going to last three and a half years, which is going to be the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, uh, which will then usher in the return of Jesus Christ. And so in that regard, it's called a short time. He's not going to go, this kingdom is not going to go on like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and, and all these others that lasted centuries. It's going to be three and a half years. Partly because it's going to be such a horrific time, uh, period of time, historically speaking, that Jesus said if those days were not shortened, no flesh would remain upon the earth. So God's going to, in his mercy, cut it down to three and a half years. All right? Verse 11, And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. Got it? All right, let's move on. And again, I'm so glad that we have an angel to help us. I can't imagine what it would be like if the angel wasn't trying to explain it to us. Okay. Um, but let me try to unravel this a little bit, okay? It, it, try to follow me. As we've already said, the sixth mountain or world empire is the Roman Empire which was in power in John's day. It eventually died. It fell in 476 A.D. But it's going to be resurrected as the seventh and final world empire composed of ten regions that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream as ten toes made up of iron and clay, and Daniel interpreted as a revived as the revived Roman Empire in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, the iron was a symbol of, of um, Rome. Remember the polymetallic image, head of gold, arms and chest of silver, uh, stomach and thighs of brass, legs of iron, which corresponded to the Roman Empire, and then ten toes made up of iron and clay. The ten toes speak of the final world empire made up of ten regions. Um, but the, the iron indicates Rome is going to have some kind of revived influence. Okay? And the clay, uh, it's going to be uh, a, a democracy, which is going to cause it to not be uh, as strong because iron and clay, ceramic clay, don't really bind to each other. That's when Daniel interpreted the dream. God said that it, this final kingdom is going to be uh, strong like iron in some ways, but mixed with ceramic clay, indicating uh, it's kind of fragile in some ways too. All right? Now, out of this seventh empire, 
will arise an eighth king who will be of the seventh kingdom. And this was, again, the seventh kingdom is going to be the final worldwide empire. And of course, this eighth king that arises is none other than the Antichrist. The Antichrist. He's of the seventh. We're going to see just a second, okay? Uh, let me just say this. When the Antichrist first comes to power, he, I, I believe the scriptures teach that he's going to be seen as a kind of world ambassador. A kind of world ambassador who will work to bring the nations of the world together. You know, helping to organize the world into a single global government consisting again of ten regions. For most of the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the Antichrist I don't see him. I don't see him being a, a world leader in the sense that he's over these nations or these regions, right? I, I see him that he's going to be um, again a, a kind of a world ambassador. He's not. He's not going to be um, the absolute ruler of this ten-region confederation or global government. He might be seen as the unofficial world leader, kind of like um, the leader of the, United, of the United Nations, who currently is uh, Antonio Gutierrez. He's seen by many as the unofficial leader of the free world. He's not the official leader. He's got no real power. But there's a lot of people who really want a global government, already working towards that, who look at him kind of like as a figurehead or a prototype of a world leader who will have power over a one-world government. So I think for the first three and a half years, the Antichrist is the quintessential politician, ambassador, goodwill a person, he's bringing regions of the world together, organizing a one-world government. He's not the leader of it. He's just facilitating this world empire, right? But eventually, the Antichrist is going to rise up and take over this final world empire, listen, by force, by force. And I think it is obviously after the demon or Satan himself possesses this guy, all right, he is going to rise up, no longer be uh, content with just being kind of a goodwill ambassador or figurehead. He's going to want uh, to uh, usurp real authority over this government he has worked to set up, okay? And so uh, at that time, he will become a king, literally, or an absolute ruler, and it, this is also going to include the uh, the um, uh, the idea, the teaching that he is divine, all right? That he is divine. Uh, we know that at one point, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, he is going to proclaim himself as God. Now we've been talking about that for a long time. Okay, I think it all coincides. I think you know the demon entering into him which then gives him incredible power, real live ability to work miracles. Um, but he'll, he'll have this now this uh, fire, this demonic passion to become the absolute ruler of this earthly kingdom in part by claiming himself to be divine. So guys, he starts off being a man of peace, a man of peace. But eventually he becomes a demon-possessed, bloodthirsty tyrant who will seek to kill all who oppose him, especially, especially the Christians living at that time.
And as we said, this will take place around the midpoint of the tribulation period. Turn to Daniel, uh, to Daniel 7. And if you're not confused already, I will work harder at confusing you as we come into Daniel 7. Let me give you a little background. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream of this 90-foot polymetallic image, you know, head of gold, arms and chest of silver, stomach and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and then ten toes, iron and clay, many commentators believe that what, Dan, what Nebuchadnezzar was seeing was the kingdoms of the world from, of the world from man's perspective. Shiny, uh, you know, uh, valuable, that kind of thing. When Daniel has his vision, he doesn't see a large polymetallic image. He sees a series of wild, voracious animals tearing each other apart. And many believe that what Daniel is seeing is these world empires from God's vantage point. From God's vantage point. Now, here's what's going to get a little tricky. Verse 7, Daniel 7, verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold... A fourth beast. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. Daniel, the first beast Daniel sees is the one that was in power in his lifetime, which would have been Babylon. He doesn't see the first two, Egypt and Assyria. So he starts with the third kingdom. He calls it the first beast, which means the fourth beast that Daniel sees is actually the sixth kingdom that John sees. Because John sees them all. All right? Just so you understand that. Um, what John sees in Revelation 17 as the sixth world empire, Daniel likens to a fourth beast. Okay? He says, um, uh, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, uh, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge, huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. Guys, history tells us that the Roman Empire was so strong, it just steamrolled rolled over everybody. I mean, when it wanted to conquer an area, it didn't just want to conquer the area. It wanted to crush this kingdom, this area, into the ground. It wanted to completely destroy it. That's what their mindset was. And why? Because they didn't want anyone else to ever try to go against the Roman Empire. If you, if you go to war with a kingdom, that was the idea back then, and you so thoroughly demoralize and, and uh, destroy it, it will strike fear in the hearts of future kingdoms you're going to go against. And when you show up on their doorstep, they're going to just turn over the keys and say, here you go. And that was what they wanted. Okay? But the Roman Empire, which Daniel is uh, seeing, was exceedingly fierce. All right? And um, trampling the residue with its feet, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now listen, now Daniel's vision telescopes into the future. This is a very common thing with Bible prophecy, where oftentimes something uh, is being talked about, and then in the same sentence, practically, uh, the prophecy scopes out into the future. I'll give you a perfect example. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, it's talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ, right? Then you have a comma. 
and then it jumps right into the second coming. And you read that, and if you don't know there's two comings, you'd be prone to think that Isaiah is still talking about the same coming. And this is very common in Bible prophecy where, uh, where two things will be slapped right up against each other, back to back, where one thing is like an immediate issue, and yet that it keeps on talking as if, you know, the next thing he talks about is still an immediate issue, but really it's sometimes 2,000 years down the road. All right, so as Daniel is singing this, um, this fourth beast, this fourth kingdom, which is Rome, suddenly now he says, um, and it had ten horns. Well, that's going to be the final world empire under the Antichrist that will be a, a, a composite of the revived Roman Empire, but still uh, the ten toes mixed with iron and clay. And um, verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. Now this is speaking of the Antichrist, right? Before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Apparently, when the Antichrist decides he wants to be uh, the absolute ruler of this final kingdom, three of the nations out of the ten, or regions out of the ten, aren't happy about it. Because they don't want to relinquish their sovereignty to this ambassador, who now is demanding to be the absolute ruler of the whole deal, right? And so they resist him. And so what does he do? He pulls them out by the roots. What does that mean? They're never going to rise to power ever again. They're done. All right? They're done. And there, in this horn, see, he sees the, another horn, a little horn rising up. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Well, that's a giveaway right there. Whenever you see a horn with a big mouth, that's the Antichrist. It's always the Antichrist. He's got 33 titles he goes by in Scripture uh, that, you know, that this Bible calls him by. Antichrist isn't really one of them. That's a title we've given him. All right? If we were to give him a title consistent with who he is, the big mouth would be a perfect title. Okay. Now in verse 23, starting in verse 23, the interpretation is given. And it goes on, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Again, the Roman Empire, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise uh, from this kingdom, this final world empire under the Antichrist. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. That's just another way of saying three and a half years. All right? Three and a half years which is going to be the final three and a half years of the tribulation period that Jesus called in Matthew 24, 21, great tribulation. So tribulation, first three and a half years, followed by great tribulation, the last three and a half years. That's when the Antichrist is going to be around from the very beginning of the tribulation period. 
as we said last time, he is the white rider of the white horse when Jesus breaks the first seal on the scroll, right? He comes on the on the world scene right away at the beginning. But he's a man of peace. He's a world ambassador. He's not a bloodthirsty military tyrant, not initially, but he becomes that at the midpoint when the demon enters into him and uh, he declares his own divinity. And now he institutes a brand new religion where he's God and anyone who does not worship him, he wants to kill. He wants to get rid of, okay? Um, so back in Revelation 17, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. The angel, guys, further explained that the ten horns which John saw are ten kings. One commentator, I think, said something important. He said, and I quote, What or who they are actually going to be cannot be known to any earlier generation, such as ours, because they have not yet received a kingdom, since they are a part of Antichrist's future empire. So we don't know exactly how, you know, as we said last time, under the Antichrist, the world is going to be divided up into ten regions. Now, we used to think back in the 80s, uh, it was um, the European economic community. And they were getting together, and they were starting to add to their numbers, and we all said, this is it. And then nine, and then ten, Jesus is coming, and then twelve, and then twenty. And, I, you know, so we decided, well, that really wasn't the fulfillment. And so now it wasn't just ten nations under the uh, under the uh, European economic community. Now we believe that it's 10 regions, that the earth is going to be uh, broken into 10 regions. Uh, each region is going to have a king or a president or a prime minister over whatever label they're going to be called by, okay? But guys, many believe that uh, there are groups like the Club of Rome, the Bilderbergers, the Trilateralists, and the Council on Foreign Relations that have already divided up the world uh, divided it up financially into ten regions, which many say is the first step to eventually turning them into ten political regions, uh, the ten political regions of a one-world government. So, and you can go online as I did. There are different. Uh, some believe the first region is the North American um, Union, America, Canada, Mexico. Second region is the European economic uh, uh, union that we just talked about. And then they have different regions of the earth that fall under these 10 regions. I don't know how accurate it is, but they're out there. You wanted to do a little research on your own. But the angel tells John, this final world empire will only continue for one hour. Now that's a um, idiom for a short time. And we do know, once again, from Daniel 7.25 and Revelation 13.5, which says specifically... It's going to be three and a half years. So this final world empire will continue only for a short time, three and a half years. Because this empire in part is going to be cut short by the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. Okay? And also because God won't let it go too long because all flesh will be destroyed, as we just talked about. All right? Um, but as we just read, when the Antichrist takes power over this final world government, Three of the ten kings opposed him, so he pulls them out by the roots, whatever that means exactly. Uh, we're not sure. If their regions are dissolved and come under now, uh, are absorbed into the 
other seven regions, which now become bigger. I don't know. Probably that's what's going to happen. Um, but the agenda of the remaining kings, all right? I mean, three have been wiped out. Three kings of three regions are gone, all right? The agenda of the remaining kings, like that of Satan and the Antichrist, uh, will be to hold on to power, obviously, to hold on to power, how? By waging war against the Lamb at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, we've talked about this. Let me say it one more time. The Bible is clear. Um, I, I think I said it was um, Revelation 12.6. I think it was 12.6. Which says that from the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies until the return of Jesus Christ can be 1,260 uh, days. That's three and a half years. So, the, I mean, you know, the Antichrist going to read the Bible because he wants to know what's coming, okay? He knows he's got three and a half years from the time he sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, starts his new religion, takes control over the whole world as their new absolute leader. He's got three and a half years to mobilize an army strong enough to do battle against the Lamb or the Son of God, Jesus Christ, when he comes back to the earth to establish his kingdom. And we'll study that more in Revelation 19. I, I love it, okay? So I don't want to get into the details right now. But um, the agenda, devil, antichrist, false prophet, they're going to want to hold on to their power by waging war against the Lamb of God at the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 17, verse 13. These, the remaining seven kings, are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, to the Antichrist. These will make war with the Lamb. Let me stop there. Um, why are these kings? And of course, they are leading, they're under the Antichrist uh, as his co-regents. Why is it that they're so enamored with this guy? That they believe they could actually go to war against Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and win? There's two main reasons. Two main reasons. The first is Revelation 16. If you turn to it. Two main reasons why they're so enamored with this world leader that they think they can, through him, go to war against God. You say, do they really think they can win against God? Apparently. Apparently. Why are they so enamored? Well, first of all, Revelation 16, uh, starting with verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the dragon being Satan. Verse 14. For they are spirits of demons performing signs or miracles, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle that of that great day of God Almighty, verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, in Hebrew Armageddon. So what's the first reason these kings of the earth think that they can go to war against God and win Jesus Christ? They're demonically deceived. They are demonically deceived. Now hang on to that thought. We'll come back to it. What's the second reason? Well, Revelation 13, verses 3 and 4. 
We've all we've we've studied this. And I saw one of his heads, the Antichrist, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? As we have said, at one point, somebody's going to try to assassinate this guy, and he's going to appear to be dead. But then after a time, and I think it's three days, he miraculously comes back to life. He resurrects, no doubt a counterfeit of Jesus' resurrection, right? But at this point, what was the world being enamored with this guy turns into full-blown worship. They believe he's a god. And because they are so deceived now in thinking that this man is a god, uh, he's, he's going to have various supernatural abilities because the, 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 the devil or a very powerful demon is going to possess him. So he will at that point have supernatural powers, which seem to include the power of life and death because you kill this guy, he comes back to life. You can't kill him because he's God, is the idea. Verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb. So all these kings of the earth under the Antichrist. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Well, of course. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. You're all going to be with him. We are all going to be with him. Chosen and faithful. And he returns on that white horse with all of us riding white horses. And not just the redeemed, the bride of Christ, but the holy angels coming to the earth to establish, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, right? And we'll see that when we get to chapter 19, because I love it. The world thinks they're going to go to war against God. <laughs> Think again. Uh, Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. You know, she'll, he'll hold them in derision. He'll mock them. How deceived do you have to be to think you can actually fight against God and win? There's a lot of folks in our culture who think that very thing. Maybe not literally like we're talking about, but they actually believe that they can fight against God. I will not have this man rule over me. I'm going to be the, 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 the master of my own life. But what does the Bible say? It's um, um, woe unto him or her who what? Strives with their maker the way of the transgressor is what hard now some people beat their head against the wall long enough where they wake up and they get saved so a lot of people that were atheists and hardcore atheists um, anti-god not just atheists they were anti-theists that's the difference an atheist doesn't believe in god but it could be a benign Denial of God. Well, you want to be one of those dumb Christians? That's up to you. Uh, you know, an anti-theist is a militant, radical atheist who sees it as their mission to stomp out your faith. It's not like, well, you believe what you want, I believe what I want. I don't believe there's a God. No, no, no. You can't believe what you believe. Our country is slowly being populated by anti-theists who don't just want to coexist with you. What about the bumper sticker? Coexist, right? How come that doesn't apply to us, right? They don't want to coexist with us. They want to destroy us. You talk about cancel? They want to cancel literally. And this will happen in the tribulation period 
um, like it's never happened before in the history of the world, where millions upon millions upon millions of Christians are going to be canceled, killed, martyred. In chapter 7 of Revelation, one of the uh, elders says to John, there's a multitude here, who are these in heaven? What is this multitude, John? Who are they? I, I, I don't know. You tell me. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of Christ, and they are righteous. But John said, I couldn't even number them. There were so many. So many. All right, we've already looked at verse 15. So verse 16, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. This takes place, guys, starting at the midpoint of the tribulation period. That's the, the time when Jesus said, when you see the abomination of, of desolation standing in the Holy of Holies, don't even go back into your house and get any clothes. Run down to the wilderness, right? Talking to the Jewish people at that time primarily. Um, because at that point, Jesus, a great tribulation will arise such as never been since the beginning of time, nor will ever be again. So this is going to start at the midpoint of the final half of the tribulation period. Um, let me say this, once, and I've said this before, let me say it again. When the Antichrist first comes to power, he's trying to bring the world together into a, a, a whole new, brand new government, a, a earthly, one world government, right? And he needs religion. Nothing unites like religion. The problem is there are so many religions on the face of the earth that keep us separated. If you can come up with one religion that everybody buys into, it will unite the world like nothing else. That was the, that's going to be the idea. And so in the beginning uh, of the tribulation period, the Antichrist needs religion. He even gives them the illusion that they're in charge. The woman, Mystery Babylon, she's riding the beast, this one world government. She's steering it, controlling it, like a rider would steer and control a horse, right? The Antichrist is giving, and the devil is giving this world religion the uh, impression that they're really in control. They're happy. They will be. Because it seems like, you know, their world religion is the power on the globe, or in the globe, right? Um, but once he has consolidated his power, again, this happens right around the midpoint, the Antichrist no longer needs the help of religious Babylon, chapter 17. And now, of course, along with all of his followers who think he's God, he turns on her to destroy her and her global one world religion. Ultimately, guys, the Antichrist will not tolerate the worship of any god except himself let me go through these one more time i just quoted uh, matthew 24 but turn to second thessalonians 2 which we have read numerous times but again at the midpoint the antichrist doesn't need any other religion except his own now he's already solidified his power right his followers the earth dwellers are all on board they're all on board they will do anything for him, even if it means killing by the millions followers of Christ. Because they think, they're going to think, the Christians are the 
devil worshippers. Because they've been convinced that the dragon, Satan, is God. The Antichrist is his son, false prophet. You know, he leads the whole world in worship to this Antichrist. Um, but we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin has revealed the son of perdition. That's the Antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This coincides with what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, this would be the image of the Antichrist set up in the holy of holies in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. It's called the abomination of desolation because it's the ultimate act of desecration, rendering the temple completely useless, defiled, can't be used anymore for the worship of the true God. Okay, And that's the idea behind what the devil and the Antichrist are doing. But when you see this abomination of desolation, the image of the Antichrist, standing in the Holy of Holies, right? Uh, verse 16, then, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And you can read the entire chapter, right? Have you turned to one more? Daniel 11, which also talks about this very thing we're talking about. Daniel 11, verse 36. Then the king, this would be the eighth king, the Antichrist. Then the king shall do according to his own will, of course. I mean, he's all about himself. He's the ultimate narcissist, right? Uh, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. His day is coming. His day is coming. It's going to run its course. God is going to allow this guy to run its course. And, uh, you know, and um, all those who want to follow him are going to come on board. And at a set time, God will say enough is enough. And Jesus will return and judge all the followers of the Antichrist, taking the Antichrist and false prophet who are alive and casting them alive into the lake of fire or hell. He is going to perdition. He's going to be cast into the lake of fire. Okay? Um, and so, guys, the Antichrist at this point not only breaks his covenant with Israel. Remember Daniel 9.27? That's what officially starts the uh, tribulation period. The Antichrist signs a, a, a peace treaty or a covenant with the nation of Israel, uh, which will last seven years. For uh, one week, it's called, but seven years. And um, he's going to break it in the midpoint, it says. And why? Because he's going to declare himself to be God and stop the sacrifices and offerings to the true and living God, set his image up in the Holy of Holies, demand to be worshipped now as God. So he's going to prosper for a while, but then he's going to get the snot kicked out of him. He's going to be uh, cast into the lake of fire. Um, so at one point, the Antichrist not only breaks um, his covenant with Israel, but he also breaks his relationship with the apostate church, as we have just mentioned. I like what J. Vernon McGee said on the subject. He said, and I quote, The hatred of the Antichrist and his followers against the apostate church is so violent that the reaction is described as the cannibalistic picking of her bones, then burning them with fire. Oh, he hates her. He's put up with her. He's had to, you know, make her think she's in charge and 
and he works for her. Oh, but he can't wait to destroy her, and that, that will come. Uh, Revelation 17, verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. The followers of the Antichrist and the kings that lead these various regions of the earth. God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God has put it into their hearts. God has directed the judgment against religious Babylon. Um, and what God is teaching us is that sometimes God will use one wicked group here, uh, the remaining seven kings of the ten, okay, um, to be a, a, his instrument of judgment upon another wicked group, and that would be the religious Babylon or the world church. Now, this is common. God will often use one group that is wicked to punish another group that's wicked. The problem is it doesn't sound right. And Habakkuk wrestled with this in Habakkuk chapter 1. When he prayed, God, I don't know why I keep praying. You're not doing anything. I'm praying and praying. Nothing ever changes. You ever been there? And God said, oh, I'm working, Habakkuk. In fact, I'm working so much if I told you how much I was working, you wouldn't believe me for the magnitude. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to judge the wicked, wicked southern kingdom of Judah. They had become apostate. Now, that blew Habakkuk's mind. He was a righteous prophet. He said, well, Lord, I know that we're bad, but they're much worse than us. Why would you use them to judge us? What do you think? With knowledge comes what? Responsibility. Why didn't God wipe the Philistines out when they grabbed the Ark of the Covenant and started manhandling it and, 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 and all of that? Remember that? Why didn't God wipe them out? I mean, one guy, Uzzah, who was a Kohathite, family, the, the family of the Kohathites were the ones that God had, um, uh, had appointed to transport the ark when God said it was time to break camp and move. They were the ones who were taught how to properly transport the ark. And you never touched it. You had to carry it on your shoulders on poles. There was rings in the ark on the base. You slid these big long poles in there covered with gold, and you would cover the ark and you would carry it on the shoulders of the Kohathites. You didn't touch it. It represented God's presence. You don't just manhandle God on our terms. But the Philistines were pagans. They didn't know any better. They didn't have the word of God on the subject. And God cut them some slack. Because, you know, they didn't have the knowledge. Uzzah, when the ark was being in David, you know, he meant well. But he completely messed that up. Uh, he didn't read the scriptures. He just thought, let's put it on a, on a new cart like the Philistines did. You know, this is the problem today. The church saying, let's do the work of God the way the world would. And people are dying. People are getting wiped out because we don't ever do the work of God the way the world works. All right? We don't follow their example, right? But David had the cart put on a, a cart and being pulled by a couple of oxen and uh, I think it was Ahio, was Uzzah's brother, was driving the oxen, and 
uh, heel was Rosa was uh, walking next to it, uh, you know, next to the the cart with the ark and so on. Uh, and at one point, the oxen hit a rut or a rock in the road, and the whole thing begins to shake. It looks like the ark did a tumble off into the dirt, and Uzzah just reflexively reaches out and steadies it. He didn't want the ark to fall into the dirt. God struck him dead in the spot. Well, that put a damper on the festivities, and you can read the story. David says, just put it somewhere. I'm going home. Here we're trying to do a good thing. Here we're trying to do a nice thing. We want to bring the ark back to Jerusalem so that we can worship God. Um, it can be the center of the nation's worship. Thanks, God. We're trying to do something good for you. This is how you treat us. I'm done, David. So I'm going home. You know. Side note. If the ark had tumbled into the dirt, it wouldn't have been defiled. You know why? The dirt obeys God. Whatever is planted grows exactly the way God has ordained creation to work. You know who defiles? Man. I'm sure Uzzah was a good guy, but he was a sinner. And defiled sinners just don't manhandle God. You don't just approach God on your terms and so on. Connect with God any way you want. God was really making a statement. It's good to do a good thing, but you have to do it the right way. You have to follow my instructions. That's a side issue, okay? But Habakkuk was shocked that God would use a wicked people like the Babylonians to judge his own people. Well, they didn't have. They didn't have the knowledge of God. They were not God's chosen people, his covenant people. They didn't have the word of God, whereas Israel did. And they had fallen into idolatry big time. I know at this point, we'll close with this. Some would say, is it fair that God would put it into one group's hearts to come against and be used to judge another group? That doesn't seem right. That's because you don't know God. If you feel that way, it's because you don't know God. Now, not that any of us know God in, in complete truth, but the Word of God gives us a look at who God really is, right? We, people want to blame God, right? Why would God put it into this person's heart to judge this person? It doesn't seem right. Well, let's not forget, these people that God is judging now in, in the, during the tribulation period, uh, let me read to you 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 11. The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they what? Did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God sent them, or will send them, strong delusion that they should believe the lie. If you don't want the truth, then God says, then you don't deserve the truth. And if I'm not going to get glory from your life because you're walking in truth and are my people, if you want to go the way of the devil, I'll let you do that. And I've tried to enlighten you to the truth. You've rejected that. Now apparently you want the devil's lies, and so here you go. Here you go. So it's not God's fault. It never is. But people want to blame God. All right, let's finish up with verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. As I said earlier, it's best not to see the seven mountains as referring to geographical Rome. That's true. As we have seen, the seven mountains refer to the seven world empires that started with Egypt. It will culminate with the final world, world empire under the Antichrist. 
But here in verse 18, we are told that the woman now, the woman, not the seven mountains, the woman who is riding the beast is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. I could be wrong, but in John's day, there was no doubt which city reigned over the kings of the earth. It was Rome. It was Rome. Rome was the political, economic, and religious center of the world in John's day. Again, why are we told that the woman who is the false religious system is Rome? Again, and I'll finish with this, I believe the association of this harlot, religious Babylon, with Rome, first of all, doesn't mean that the Roman Catholic Church headquartered in Rome is all that's in view. But again, I do believe that um, the fact that she is associated with Rome tells me the Roman Catholic Church will lead this apostate world church but will not be exclusive of it. There's going to be many religions. But as we said a few weeks ago, uh, ever since John Paul II, maybe even before him, um, the Roman Catholic Church has seen itself as the mother church trying to unite all religions on the face of the earth. And, and, and there, you can go back and listen to that because I quoted you some of the meetings that John Paul II had with uh, religious leaders from all over the world including Hindus and animists, spiritists, uh, all kinds of, just wanting to bring everybody together under the umbrella of the mother church, Roman Catholic Church. So um, you can go back and listen to that. So that takes us now, and we've taken our time with chapter 17 because it deals with this final world religion. And that really is something we need to understand because the mystery of iniquity, Paul said, is already at work. This isn't going to just pop up out of nowhere. The, the groundwork has been laid ever since the Tower of Babel, really, for this fulfillment of this world church. It's coming. And, and uh, as you look around, you can see it already coming together. Um, so it's important that we understand this. And next week, God willing, we will look at chapter 18. May, may not finish it, probably won't. We won't spend as much time on chapter 18 as we have on chapter 17, but there are some things that we're going to bring out in chapter 18, which now deals with the commercial uh, aspects of Babylon. Chapter 17, religious Babylon. Chapter 18, commercial Babylon. And we're going to touch on, not get into in detail, but touch on um, something that is being um, propagated out there called the Great Reset because it does kind of fit together with what is coming uh, with this economic um, commercial Babylon. So we'll see that starting next week. Father, we thank you for your, your truth. Your word is truth. Thank you, Lord, that you have not kept us in darkness, uh, that these things should overtake us as a thief, but you've given us in your word, Lord, things to look, for to look forward to or things to look to that are coming, prophecies that are being fulfilled, many of them before our very eyes, which signal your soon return. And Lord, give us grace that we be watchful and vigilant, we not be asleep in the light, that we keep studying your word, especially Bible prophecy, that uh, we will be um, ready when 
you come for your church because you're coming soon. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.